welcome to the Resolving Violence podcast, created to deliver current Canadian prairie-based research on violence and abuse to service providers, people with lived experience, and the general public. And Jordan. And if you'd like to learn more about factors that influence violence and the ways you can address them, let's get started. My name is Shaylin White, and I'll be joining the Resolving Violence podcast for this season. I was actually a guest for a previous episode, so if I look familiar, that could be why. For everyone else, I am an alum of the University of Saskatchewan's Women and Gender Studies Master's Program. I wrote a thesis on how queer women construct narrative counterpublics, and my big research interest is queer theory. I now work as a network catalyst for Stops to Violence and as a research clerical assistant for Resolve Saskatchewan. I'm honored to be involved with this podcast, and I'm looking forward to the conversations I'll get to be a part of. interviewing Carrie Buchanan, Associate Professor in and Head of the Department of Psychology at St. Thomas More College. She's interested in the developmental significance of peer relationships across the lifespan, but her research focus is on how we can foster healthy peer relationships during adolescence and emerging adulthood. Carrie is currently the lead scholar of a research team involved in designing, implementing, and evaluating educational programming for gender-based violence prevention on campus, and in working with various community partners, they hope to expand this education and training to youth, parents, and coaches. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so welcome to the Resolving Violence podcast, Carrie. Thank you for joining me today. I understand that you are the lead scholar of a research team involved in developing educational programming for gender-based violence prevention on campus. Are you able to offer an overview of that project, what it actually looks like, what it entails? Yeah, I'll kind of give some background as to where we're where we're coming from and where we're going, if that's helpful. Uh, so I think I'd mentioned that I'm a developmental researcher. So I'm really interested in how young people interact with their peers. And it was actually through my doctoral research, I got really interested in different forms of peer victimization and sexualized forms were something that I was most interested in. And so the last decade, I'd, yeah, I'd say about the last decade, my team has been developing and implementing and evaluating gender-based violence prevention training. So my team does include some really amazing graduate students. And it was actually Brittany thesis, master's thesis, that really flows well, <laughs> uh, that uh, was conducted with the university student athletes on our campus uh, that's informed the direction of my current program of research. So Brittany's master's thesis was completed a few years ago. It was while we were restricted in having some interactions on campus due to COVID. Uh, so there are some unique challenges to that project because it that probably presents oh, a bit of a bit of a barrier. Yeah, it, you know, I, I like to think of myself as an optimistic person and was keen to meet those challenges. And, you know, certainly Brittany had some concerns and just concerns. And she was right. I was overly <laughs> optimistic. So her project wasn't initially supposed to be done online. Uh, we had developed in-person workshops where Brittany wanted to explore if the bystander intervention training could be supplemented with education on sexual violence and consent that would improve its efficacy over time. So 
thankfully we had actually been thinking of making the workshops available in person and online. And so we were able to expedite that because we really didn't know particularly at that time how long we would be restricted to remote teaching and learning and all other activities. So we thought, let's just do this so Brittany can actually finish her master's thesis. Uh, So the project was the student athletes were assigned to three different conditions. So the one group completed the online version of the bystander intervention training. The other group completed the bystander intervention training plus education on sexual violence and consent. And then the other group didn't receive anything. They were our control group. So they all had to complete online survey or questionnaire that had a number of measures that we had selected to evaluate both short-term and long-term efficacy. And that questionnaire was completed three times. So once before they were assigned to their conditions and immediately after their conditions were completed. And I think the ones where they did have some training were about 20 minutes and they had up to two weeks to complete that training online. Uh, And then two months after that, we followed up with the same questionnaire asking them to complete those measures. Yeah, so we fully did not anticipate how the pandemic (laughs) was going to really impact. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I suppose in, in some ways, adaptability yeah. and flexibility is necessary for researchers because yeah. human beings yeah. don't necessarily fit so, into like really tidy, so concise categories and their experiences don't either. But yeah, that's probably a pretty, pretty big one. <laughs> so I would normally ask, like, did you experience any noticeable challenges when it came to implementing this? But I suppose in a way you did kind of touch on that. What sort of effect would you say the transition to purely online delivery would have had on the work you were doing? Like, do you think there are any key points where it might have made a tangible difference? That that actually ended up being most of Brittany's thesis because we had such low participation rates and a lot of our participants did not complete up to the two-month um, period that we had asked them to commit to and being participants in the study. Also, the majority of the student athletes who did participate were from the women's teams. We had challenges in recruiting the students from the men's team. But, you know, despite those challenges, we did get at least some data where (laughs) Brittany was able to write our thesis, and it really has informed the work we're doing now. One is to get a better understanding of why people didn't complete the programming. I can touch on that in a bit. If it would it be helpful to talk about some of I mean, there wasn't like groundbreaking findings, but yeah, so we did actually find that compared to the control group that didn't receive any training at all, that uh, both the bystander intervention training and having that supplementary training of the education on sexual violence and consent did demonstrate some significant results in terms of showing that there was uh, efficacy across time. So we were we were happy to do that. That was encouraging despite <laughs> all the challenges in terms of low participation and retention. So yeah, that's really encouraged us now to 
Oh, and I should mention, well, maybe it's worth mentioning. We will be publishing those findings in a chapter in a book that's actually focusing on how- Oh, that's definitely yeah, worth mentioning. Basically, it is about dealing with sexual violence on, and during COVID. Yeah, there was definitely more learned about not doing <laughs> great research during the pandemic, or maybe how to do it better in the future. But I definitely feel like there was a window of time where a lot of the research that was being done ended up, whether intentionally or not, being about the experience of attempting to do research during a global sort of emergency situation. So I imagine that um, when it comes to evaluating the effectiveness of violence prevention education, that can be difficult. So especially when you're looking to create long-term behavioral change, um, what does evaluation look like for this kind of research? Well, this is something I struggle with a lot. I'm very concerned about the validity of the measures that are often used in testing or examining the um, effectiveness of any kind of programming that is geared to prevent gender-based violence. My major concern, and we've tried to address this a little bit, it doesn't adequately represent experiences of gender-based violence beyond that male perpetrator, female victim scenario. So we've attempted to revise some of the measures using gender-neutral language, which I think is insufficient in making sure that it's valid. So I think we need to really recognize that survivors of gender-based violence are not exclusively women and nor are the perpetrators exclusively men. But I don't think we have the data yet to fully understand what that does look like. And I think it does require us working more with diverse communities. So that's going to make our programming better because it's going to be more comprehensive. It's going to be more inclusive, but we're also going to have to either refine or I think maybe develop new measures that could be used in making those changes to the programming. Yeah, because I think we do need some new measures to really assess the change that we're hoping to make and people's understanding, their attitudes, the behaviors that we're saying we're attempting to change. I'm not sure we're there yet. I know I'm not the only one that has that concern, but I feel like it gets talked more among the people doing research than really being vocalized on any kind of platform. So I'm sticking my head out there and saying we need to do better. I think it's definitely worth speaking up about. That's an interesting point you raise about attempting to make that transition to gender neutral language to better capture that, but it not necessarily being effective. Because I do think that there's a tendency when people try to be neutral, then people tend to default whatever their ingrained assumptions are rather than accept the neutrality as neutrality. So you may use they, them pronouns and not specifically gender a potential perpetrator. But if people have that idea, image in their heads that it is always male, then they tend to just default to that image regardless. Absolutely. So that's definitely would be a challenge, I imagine, when it comes to trying to alter people's understandings of what violence looks like. Yeah. And I, I think another direction I would like to go that even moves beyond trying to be neutral is actually creating programming that's really adaptable to different communities where we do get a good sense of what's happening in that particular community where our training modules can 
include examples that are relevant to that group of people that may or may not be relevant to other groups. Because I think kind of touching on what you had said in going with neutrality, even if it, I think you will still default to the norm, like what's considered the norm, even if it's well, just so deeply ingrained yeah, in people. It is. It absolutely, and the stats support it. I, I mean, if we look across Canada, that it is overwhelmingly those who identify as women or girls that experience gender-based violence. But at the same time, that's the way we're measuring it too. So I, I do wonder about the stats, but it's complicated. And I, I do think there's things that we can do to start to address some of these problems that I, I think I've raised and others have raised. Do you have any thoughts on what kind of things could be potentially be done going forward? Like imagine that you have all the time and resources and money you need to implement whatever your dream new approach would be. So one of the projects or things that we're doing as a team that I do feel kind of emerge from Brittany's work in trying to be more comprehensive and inclusive in our in our training and maybe even how we measure it is we are working with different groups in fact we have a more recent collaboration with some very good people in the uh, sexual assault services of Saskatchewan and they have similar desire to be able to work with different communities and I think it just means including voices from the groups that we think may really want to be dealing with gender-based violence and it may not look like what it looks like in the on campus or so they have a good example I think is they've included the voice of different indigenous groups and I'm not an expert in that it would be I think problematic for me to try and develop any kind of programming that could be useful up north with not understanding or hearing the voices of people who are experiencing it have some can guide us and even in terms of how we might want to address it too. I think it's been interesting to include not just academics, of course, on how we might go about this. So we've been talking about difficulties with evaluating this kind of training and education. Do you have any thoughts on what would make education effective? Like what an ideal violence prevention education program might incorporate as characteristics? So that is something, again, that I think we're trying to do in including different voices. So I think we need a better understanding of what's happening. One thing that we are, we're going to try include more is intimate partner violence as well. Um, and recognizing again, that doesn't always fit that stereotype of male perpetrator, female victim. We've got survivors who don't fit that experience, but you could develop what might be very effective programs, but if you don't get people taking them, it's kind of useless. And that's a challenge that another project that we're doing, I hope will give us some data on. So I can talk a little bit about that one. So we, it's a two part study. The first part, well, was the first idea that we had after Brittany had finished her thesis. We're like, we need to understand why certain people aren't doing these programs. I mean, we thought that during the pandemic, that especially the university athletes would have extra time on their hands because they can't go to their regular training. They're not in their playoffs. 
But I think students overall were just overwhelmed. But there were still certain groups of people who weren't doing the programming. So we thought we'd like to do some focus groups with athletes on the different teams just to hear from them. If you have done these programs, why? If you haven't, why not? Then that got us thinking, well, it's not just the university student athletes that we want doing these programs. It's across campus and, of course, in other communities too. So our another part of that project uh, we've decided to do, we actually just got it started. It's a survey across campus, open to all students across all colleges. Uh, and it's actually done, being done with student affairs and outreach. They offer, I think right now they offer about 10 different wellness workshops and the gender-based violence prevention is one of them. So we're asking students, have they've heard about any of these 10 workshops? And if they have, why have they done them or not? And of course, I'm most interested in the gender-based violence prevention programming that we're running on campus right now. And I'm really hoping that we get some data that helps us understand why, again, why people are not completing these programs. And really, the key to being effective is actually getting people to do them. So I think that will shed some light that hopefully we can start working into the actual programming, but certainly the recruitment of getting people involved in completing the projects. And of course, we do want to do evaluations, so hopefully gear them up to wanting not just to complete the programs, but participate in our evaluation of the programs as well. Is there anything impactful that you found in your research that you feel doesn't get quite the same attention as other things or doesn't get talked about or asked about as frequently? To me, it does kind of just go back to what I'm, I'm most concerned about is how impactful the work really is. I mean, if we're not using robust measures to assess the impact, I'm, I'm a little concerned about what we're actually able to say in terms of our programming uh, and with who. So I know there are some campuses and other communities that make even like work organizations that make gender-based violence prevention programming mandatory to complete. Uh, we have concerns about that, but overall, a lot of that programming self-select to complete it. And I worry about the people who aren't doing it. And if they're not doing it, we're not having the impact that we want to. I'm curious about the concerns you have about places that make it mandatory to complete. What sort of concerns do you have there? Backlash. And there's been some research on that and not just with gender-based violence. There are situations where you make any kind of programming mandatory. If a particular group feels it's not required, they could actually backlash against having that program kind of forced on them if that's how they perceive it. I see kind of like a defensiveness, especially I I think that there are some people that they may feel like they're being accused, like saying, you you think that I need it? You think I'm the kind of person that does this? So Exactly. And also, if you don't know that something is effective, I would really feel uncomfortable making it mandatory. So I think there's a few steps that have to be taken before you would ever make something mandatory. I would, I love the idea that we could get to that point where, uh, and we've definitely talked about this with administration, um, both at uh, St. Thomas More College and at uh, the University of Saskatchewan, that 
it probably would be a good idea that all first year students complete this kind of training and it just be part of their understanding that as you join this community, these are things that we want you to know. And there would be other things that would be included in that. So it didn't seem like it was targeted in any way that might minimize any kind of perceived backlash or prevent people from engaging in backlash. Yeah. So you're talking about effectiveness and impact. So I suppose that's pretty good transition to our last question, which is if you were to give service providers a practice to work towards in the long term, so something simple that they could start implementing today, what would it be? So something to build towards that point of hopefully having more of an impact. I would like to get to the point where we really limit the need for service providers to have to work with survivors of gender-based violence. But I think it's pretty unlikely we'll eradicate (laughs) gender-based violence prevention. So I, I really do hope that our work in this area and certainly others does empower others to intervene when it's safe to do so. That's the whole idea behind the bystander intervention training that we offer is that you do feel like you have the tools and ability to step in as long as it's safe to do so and recognize when it's safe to do so. I also hope we better equip people with an understanding of how some behaviors are harmful. I I think there are some things that get said or done where a person might not truly understand that they are causing harm to others. I think there's that's just an education piece. I think it's really important to create more adaptable programs that can be implemented into diverse communities. I also would like to see the implementation of developmentally appropriate programming that starts at a very young age. In my opinion, it's a little late to be starting this kind of programming with university students, but you know, we we're meeting resistance. This should be part of our sexual education curriculum. And we're just seeing more and more challenges. I really would like to find ways to work with young people. That's my passion, working with adolescents for sure. But I think there's ways that we can teach children about gender-based violence that is a developmentally appropriate way. And actually, I do have some grad students who are eager to develop programming that would be geared to parents. I have one student who's interested in working with coaches. So I think there's, I'm excited that I have such a great group of people who really see themselves as being part of the solution, even if sometimes it seems like the problem is getting worse in different ways. So that's important to me, having a good group of people who are eager to find ways to incite change. I think that's definitely a bright point in whatever, regardless of what the circumstances may be, when you do have people that are dedicated to that change, then that always seems like a good sign, I think. So I would say that that's worth remembering. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Carrie. It was great having a chance to speak with you. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this work ends up going. I'll be doing my best to follow it because definitely an interest of mine thinking about violence prevention and how that actually can be implemented and how it can actually be measured. And speaking personally as Shaylin, I am definitely interested. So Thank you very much. Yeah, well, we need more people like you. <laughs>
<laughs> hopefully, hopefully we will find this episode will find people like us and then it can lead to a whole spark and a whole chain of connections and people talking about it. That's always, that's always the hope. It is for sure. But there's also the element that I keep reminding, especially some of my more eager members on my team is that we have to be patient too. We, we have to invest our time and energy in ways that this is going to be done the best that we can. I get worried about charging in and trying to make change without doing it strategically, really consulting what others have done, try not to create the same or encounter the same problems. Well, you don't want to just spin your wheels aimlessly and end up following the same paths. So it definitely requires thoughtfulness and consideration. Yeah. And uh, two, doing it in a thoughtful way, recognizing that we are dealing with different communities and my experience is not going to be the same as others' experiences. And I think we need to take the opportunity to, to listen carefully and then approach our groups in a way that's meaningful rather than well, this has worked elsewhere, so it must work for you or it will work for you. Uh, I think that's, and I think that's where we sometimes create the alienation too, where some are like, I don't, this isn't relevant to me. You're speaking. I would never do that, but not recognizing, well, maybe you wouldn't do it, but maybe your friend does or your coworker does. And there's things that you can do to prevent that as well. Thank you again for joining us, Carrie. It was great talking with you. And like I said, I will be looking forward to seeing where the work you're doing ends up going. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Resolving Violence. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their research or Resolve Saskatchewan, please check the show notes below. And if what you listened to today was helpful, please consider sharing it with colleagues, and on social media so we can work collectively to resolve violence. Thanks again. Until next time.